This is Laree Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. And when I saw Black Panther Wakanda Forever, I was all up in my black girl feelings. I was excited about it. And yet, though I was like, ooh, Okoye, and I was still on my high off of Woman King. I mean, it was a good like one-two punch for the movies for the fall, especially considering y'all. I think those were the first two movies I had seen the whole pandemic. Your sister was in her bag, okay? But there was this thing that I remember happening all of the times that I saw Wakanda forever that made my natural headed sensitive to colorism issues. It just made my heart cringe. It made my skin crawl a little bit. And I kind of pushed it to the side as many of us often do when it comes to jokes about us. And I'm talking jokes about colorism in particular, hair texture in particular. Joining me today uh, is Dr. Sarah Webb, who is an international colorism expert, and her work centers around helping businesses advance their JEDI missions. Uh, she launched the global initiative Colorism Healing in 2013 to raise awareness and foster individual and collective healing. How does the village heal? We all know that's the question of the year. Uh, through creative and critical work, Dr. Webb's myriad efforts to address colorism include designing college courses, hosting an international writing contest, publishing books, teaching workshops, and mentoring students all across the world from Sacramento, California to Sydney, Australia. Because of her work and expertise on colorism, she's written and contributed to uh, numerous academic and non-academic articles. She's presented at numerous conferences. She's been on NPR, Fox Soul TV, the Illinois Times, Forbes.com, TEDx stage. She's all over the place spreading this message, and it is a message that she is bringing now to the Larry Daniel Favors Show. Dr. Webb, it's a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for this work and for being with us today. Hi, Larry. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm excited. And I got to be honest with you, I, I was willing to do in that movie what many of us often do, which was recognize that I was uncomfortable about the jokes and push it to the side. I saw it the next time around, uncomfortable about the jokes, push it to the side. And I saw it again with a sister friend who would describe herself as richly melanated. And she was like, well, that was foul. And it kind of ruined the experience for her. And in my mind, my light skinned mind, said well you know they we always joking about each other let's just push it to the side and then I remembered the hair part because I'm sensitive about hair as a naturalista and I was like yeah you know what my pushing it to the side I think is also an example of light-skinned privilege uh, my pushing it to the side is contributing to a willingness to not confront my own buy-in to colorism in a way that is harmful couldn't let it go and ergo we invited you to come on the show <laughs> to help us figure this out talk with us first uh, Dr. Webb for those who do not know we have a very diverse audience here predominantly of us but you know uh, what is colorism and how is it both similar and distinct from racism Yes. So colorism is the bias and the discrimination or the systemic oppression of people with darker skin tones. And it is the simultaneous privileging of people with lighter skin tones. And colorism is cross-cultural. So it happens definitely within the Black community around the globe. It happens across the diaspora, but it also happens amongst other racial and ethnic groups as well. Mm. And it's similar to racism because the belief is that the more European your features are, the more European your hair textures are, having bluer eyes or 
paler skin means you're more beautiful. And it does have roots in colonialism and slavery for sure amongst African-Americans. And I think it's seen as the lesser issue, right? Mm. It seems it's seen as a more trivial issue, but my argument and my contention is that it's just as important and just as impactful because it does, it's not just about beauty contests or who's the cute Mm. girl at school or who's popular. It's also about how we're viewed by police officers. It's also about how we're viewed in the legal system, who's perceived as more of a threat, right? Who's perceived as being more um, criminal or who's seen seen as more professional. And so it has impacts across all sectors of society as well. You know, Dr. Webb, I've seen research that indicates that if you are if you are darker brown skinned person, you mentioned the criminal justice system, you're more likely to get a lengthier uh, prison sentence. You're more likely to be sentenced generally. So you don't even get the benefit of of not being sentenced in this context. You are uh, more likely to get a call back at a job. So there are economic implications. You are of all of us who are not believed at hospitals, even less likely to believed at hospitals when complaining about pain or physical ailments. So all the things that are bad for black people generally are extra bad when it comes to the way that they impact darker brown people of African descent in our community. And so, as you mentioned, this isn't just a black people thing in terms of descendants of Africa. This is really something that we see reflected everywhere that colonization, European colonization took root. Would that be a stretch of a comment or is there is there some truth to that? Oh, that's absolute truth. Mm. <laughs> it's definitely seen everywhere that we have had European colonization. Now, in some countries like Asia, they also had versions of caste systems that were similar or that also contribute, contribute to how we understand colorism in those places now. But colonialism and also, I think, globalization and the spread of Hollywood and even now America being a, col- a colonizer also, mm. um, we see that it's been entrenched, even in places where they might have had some form of colorism or casteism before the colonial process definitely made it what it is today. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's talk about how this shows up in our community. Right. And this is interesting to me because I have this Mm -hmm. conversation easy when it comes to hair. Like when it comes to talk about nappy headed black people issues, like I'm I'm with you. I'm right there. I get it. But I also recognize that there are some limitations. Right. Because, again, I was willing to put my discomfort to the side. And I think, again, that's speaks to my privilege as a lighter brown person. How does colorism show up in our communities? How do we perpetuate it? Uh, what are some of the classic examples? And I know some of y'all are thinking, girl, we know how this happened. This, this part ain't for you. There's other people in the conversation who listening who may not understand some of this insight. How does this show up within black American communities and then black diasporian communities? And how is it perpetuated in both? Yeah. So I I like to talk about colorism in four layers of manifestation. And so from the question you're asking, I'm going to talk about the individual level and the relational level, right? Mm. So individually, we see global skin bleaching, right? Amongst Black cultures around the globe, right? Even on the continent of Africa, we have men and women bleaching their skins to be lighter. And they're doing it both for the perceived ability to be able to attract a partner or a mate in romantic contexts are also doing it to be perceived as more sophisticated, more modern and more professional, right? In the workplace or just seeing them having more advancement in their career or success in society in general. Mm. And then also we see things like, you know, um, like 
people wanting to have lighter colored eyes or, you know, being ashamed of their natural hair and all that kind of thing. Now, relationally speaking, we see it in families. It definitely starts in families. Um, Not everyone is fortunate enough to have parents who have done their own work to love themselves and to love their blackness. And so sometimes, unfortunately, we have parents even who might distinguish amongst their kids. If their kids have different skin tones, they do play favoritism. Sometimes colorism has even led to physical abuse, definitely emotional abuse of children because of their dark skin tones. And even sometimes abusing of the lighter skin child if the parent is retaliating or responding to their own unhealed wounds of trauma and that sort of thing. So many reasons. We think about the Malcolm X um, autobiography, for example, where he says his light-skinned mom hated the light-skinned kids because of what it meant to her and his dark-skinned dad hated the dark-skinned kids, right? Mm. And so we have parents and adults in our communities that have not done their own healing work and unlearned these conditionings and they perpetuate that. Um, And so I think those are some of the the more painful ways that we see it show up. But in our industry, in our media, entertainments, you know, we look at Black music videos, Black movies, Black TV shows, and we see an under-representation and a misrepresentation of dark-skinned Black women in particular because that's an, also an element of it is that it impacts black dark skinned black men but it impacts them a little differently because you can be dark skinned and masculine and people think oh yeah you're uh, so rugged or you're yes. you know super handsome or you're tough right you're you're a g right so we see a lot of dark skinned rappers for example and a lot of dark skinned men like Idris Elba and Tay Diggs and like all the dark skinned men we can name off the top of our heads and we don't see that same level of support and affirmation for darker skinned black women in our communities as well so those are just some i think off the top of my head the ones that we might all know of but it goes even deeper than that well let's delve a little bit deeper you said there are four layers that you like to use when you're talking about colorism so you've mentioned two individual and relational what are the other two areas institutional and systemic so i refer to the institutional one as policies in a school or policies in a workplace or maybe even in a local government or at a church, for example. And then systemic would be patterns across a nation, right, or across the globe. And so I think when we were talking at the beginning about treatment and healthcare, and you know, recently there are some articles, I saw an article about the Apple Watch um, when COVID-19 happened and people were going to emergency rooms and they had to use the pulse oximeters, the research started to um, surface that the pulse oximeter misreads the levels of oxygen in a person's blood if their pigmentation is darker, right? Wow. So the darker your skin tone, the more inaccurate this medical device is. And so when we talk about systemic colorism, there doesn't have to be intent, right? It's literally built into the fabric of society. And it was interesting because a lot of the articles were calling this racial bias. And I'm like, it's not racial bias. It's literally a skin tone bias. And so Mm. even something like medical racism is not going to impact all Black people the same way based on their skin tone, right? Or based on other things like gender or, you know, income class. And so we have to be more nuanced in our understanding of race and racism and how it impacts us based on these other differences and identity categories we belong to Mm. you know I remember my daughter there's a friend of ours that we have uh they are they identify as a black American they are black American they have a a phenotypical structure their physical hair texture and facial features look a little bit more South Asian and my daughter who was you know six at the time was like how come Baba so-and-so because you know he's at the Kwanzaa event is Baba so-and-so black because this was a particular Kwanzaa event where only black people could be y'all know I have spaces where it's only for us (laughs) so only black people could be there and she was like I don't know 
oh, Baba so-and-so is black, mommy. And I was like, well, actually, Baba so-and-so is. And we had to explain that, you know, first of all, race is a, a man-made, human person-made construct, right? And it's just something that we are all living by. So even the idea of delving deep into it frustrates me because it's like we're delving deep into someone's, like, psychosis. <laughs> we're delving deep into, like, the crazy of people who were creating a system intentionally, intentionally. And y'all, we got to be clear. This is not accidental. It was intentionally designed to create a hierarchy of people in part to justify colonization and enslavement. So this is not something we just sort of stumbled into as humanity. This is something that a group of white people created at, sitting around at a table, perhaps at a boardroom, if you will, and coming up with a system that was going to be able to produce the results that we're seeing. So I, I just need people to know that. I saw, and one of the reasons that we were really motivated to reach out to you is there was a conversation about this particular scene, these two scenes in Wakanda Forever, uh, and I'm sure there were others, but the two that were most pre prevalent were the scenes where Okoye, um, the bald, you know, she's the bald head, played by Denai Guerrero. I always mess up her last name. Phenomenal actor, just absolutely amazing. She has a bald head that in Wakanda is bald and beautiful and tattooed. And then when they come to America for one of their missions, she has to cover up the tattoos on her head. And there's the whole kind of line of jokes that happen from that. Uh, there's one part where I think uh, it was M'Baku who calls her a bald-headed demon, something like that. But all of these jokes baked into this film that up until that point felt very, I mean, even with the, you know, the white FBI agent, felt very black liberatory on the screen. And it felt odd to me. It felt out of place. It was jarring to have M'Baku, who most of black female America and, and much of black male America is lusting after, calling, you know, Okoye this bald-headed demon. And it just felt like an abrupt slap in the face. One that I was, again, admittedly willing to overlook, but I'm imagining how that same scene may have felt while being watched from a person who had a richly melanated skin tone, who was navigating the issues that other lighter brown black people aren't necessarily experiencing. Can you talk with us a bit about the particular impact that something like that, a scene like that injected into a movie that is sort of, you know, for better or worse, for real or for fake, you know, Wakanda's not real, sort of about embodying black liberation, what harm do we draw from that being, instead of leaving that on the cutting room floor, there was a lot of decisions that were made, that not being left on the cutting room floor, including scenes like that in a film like that, what is the particular harm uh, of something like that now becoming an international uh, number one box office hit? So... The way the reason representation matters, because we hear that phrase a lot, representation matters, representation matters. And one of the primary reasons it matters is that the way people are represented directly impacts how people are treated mm. in society. Mm. So if we continue to allow or condone or create representations where black women, where dark skinned black women get have to be the butt of a joke, mm. have to be made fun of, have to be demonized pun intended, yeah. for no other reason than their physical features, right? It's not like he was referring to her attitude or referring to her like something she had done, right? Yeah. It's an attack on her physical appearance, right? And instead of taking this opportunity of, a, of this Black film to normalize a Black body, to normalize Black female bodies, to normalize the different variations of how we show up as Black people in the world, mm. it's a it's a kind of an act of violence and you because you said slap in the face right so it's kind of an emotionally violent scene for people who probably have had similar experiences being told that by brothers kinfolk right 
people in their community, people at their school, similar jokes. And so I can imagine one of the impacts of all the women in the theaters who kind of felt like it was a slap in the face to them. But also, I think it's sending the message to the rest of the world, Black people and non-Black people, that, you know, Blackness is something to be made fun of it's something to be demonized and i think what's what was interesting in that film is that you had non-black women and none of them had their physical features picked apart none of them had their mm. physical appearances made fun of none of them had the, the other women in the film who were not black were portrayed with a level of dignity and respect mm. that we would have expected and that we should have gotten and that we deserved to get in Wakanda forever. And yes, there were scenes where, you know, dark-skinned women were shown in their glory, but I think that those particular scenes kind of undercut and undermined yeah. all the other potential that was in the film. Yeah. You know, when I saw Woman King, one of the, the I wouldn't say it's a joke, but one of the comments that I saw, maybe, well, maybe it was a joke, uh, but one of the comment lines that I saw on social media uh, was that light-skinned women need not apply, right? This was a film and it was sort of a, and this is at times I have put out on social media when I was there a little bit more. Uh, we need to, we, the members of the light-skinned caucus need to gather up our sistren who are out here complaining about not being able to be in this space because truly, you know, there is something that happens, I think, where you are part of the uh, preferred, I'm putting that in air quotes, class of an ungroup, a, a group that is largely unpreferred, is that, you know, you can get used to just seeing yourself as an example of what representation looks like. And the idea that light-skinned black women were not encouraged to apply uh, for uh, Woman King, or at least that was the rumor. There actually were some, there were gradations and shades of, of color in that space. And it felt like one of those moments where we needed to put out a call that said, okay, light-skinned people stand down. Like you don't have to be the representation for blackness in all the spaces. I didn't say this at the time because I was leaving Twitter, but it seems like there is this Whenever we're having a conversation about colorism, what we will often have is lighter skinned people saying, well, I, too, suffer from colorism. And I'm glad that you mentioned Malcolm X's mother, who, as a light skinned black woman, had a lot of issues with her light skinned children. But is it safe to say or should we begin the space uh, or the process of creating a safe space? I hate using that phrase, but a safe space for us to talk about colorism in ways that intentionally center and circle around dark-skinned experiences to the exclusion of light-skinned experience. I guess what I'm asking is, is there ever a time where we can say, this ain't time for y'all? Like right now, we're talking about this. We are not talking about black people generally. We're talking about a particular subset of black people. Is there a space for that? And is that the appropriate way to sort of minimize the deflection that often happens when we talk about colorism? On this show, it has happened. I've mentioned colorism before, and we got a whole bunch of light-skinned people who called them and said how they were victimized, which is true. Like, I too was called a light-skinned bee when I was, I mean, it happens. I get it. But it just feels like sometimes that conversation can be hijacked a bit. Am I wrong in this assessment, or is there some other way that we should be looking at this? No, Lurie, you are spot on. (laughs) There's always a time and a place to center and in some cases exclusively um, focus on the experiences and the perspectives of dark-skinned people, especially dark-skinned women and femmes, as we like to say. And I think there's even a time when, you know, um, I say for my light-skinned people who want to talk about this issue and who kind of already understand it and get it and who are not sort of trying to recenter the conversation on themselves, I think sometimes it's helpful for 
other light-skinned people to call in their folks because that's a level of emotional labor, right? That I, as a dark-skinned woman, am constantly being asked to do, constantly being asked to explain to light-skinned people like how to do it or what about me kind of stuff. And so mm -hmm. I think if there are light-skinned people listening who are kind of on the page where you are, where it's kind of like, no, we get it, but this is what we're talking about now. I found it helpful when like light-skinned people call in their, their people, when they call in light-skinned people. And I do say often too, that centering dark-skinned people doesn't necessarily mean excluding light-skinned people, right? Mm. And I think part of the problem is we always look to a conversation on colorism as if it's the only one we're going to have. Yeah. And I think we will be able to sort of loosen our grip if we realize, no, we're having multiple conversations and we're having ongoing conversations. So today we're creating a space where it's an all dark skinned women panel, right? Or all queer panel or an all, you know, male panel on colorism specifically, right? Mm -hmm. Looking at all the nuances. And I think that's totally fine. And I think part of the problem is we, we have a hard time looking at ourselves as privileged people, as Black people have a hard time applying the word privilege to ourselves because it's been so easy to mm. sort of scapegoat cishet white men, like the straight, rich white folks, they're privileged, right? And so we kind of balk at or resist at the idea that we have, we as Black people have any form of it, right? Yeah. And so I, in talking to people about forms of privilege that we can have as Black people, I talk about the fact that I'm cisgender, that I'm heterosexual, that I'm tall and skinny, right? That my mom is college educated, and so I know that the way I navigate the racist world is going to be different from someone who has a different kind of identity. And so right. we can also destigmatize the word privilege and just own up to it and say, you know, we're actually more powerful when we see it and recognize it. Um, and then the last thing I'll say on that is we oftentimes do it when we talk about colorism, we oftentimes do what white people do when we talk about racism, right? We see it in white people deflecting and white people saying, well, I my I grew up poor, right? When white people say, I grew up poor and you have more education than me and they start pointing out all the ways that we as black people have more than right. they had. Right. That's kind of what people do when we talk about colorism as well. Mm. So there's some deflection. Uh, there's perhaps some unwillingness to accept that even in this great big racist world, there are some privileges that some people are able to carve out. And I think uh, just saying that is helping us to really name some of the frustrations that we've had when it comes to this topic. Uh, you mentioned uh, an all-male panel on topics of colorism, and one of the reasons I'm particularly interested in the way that men uh, are raised to see colorism is because, you know, we talk a lot about the doll test, that test within the 1940s where, you know, doctors Mamie Clark and her husband, Dr. Kenneth Clark, I gotta say it that way because y'all swear Dr. Mamie Clark ain't never did nothing, but she was right there creating the study with her husband. Uh, the doctors Clark uh, put together that doll test where they put the two dolls, one white, one black in front of the children, and they ask them questions, basically, you know, which is the smart doll, the pretty doll, the dumb doll, the mean doll, and for all the positive characteristics, nine times out of ten, black children were like, well, that's the doll, that's, you know, the pretty, smart, kind doll that everyone wants to play with, and then you reverse the questions, and on the negative characteristics, you know, most of the children were like, well, the ugly doll is the black doll, the dumb doll is the black doll, so on and so forth. That study was also used as a part of the litigation in the Brown versus Board of Education case to talk about the harm that comes from white supremacy, the harm that comes from systematized white nationalism. And one of the things that people often focus on is that it's the girls. 
They always talk about the little black girls who identify the pretty doll as the white doll. And I like to remind people dolls are inanimate objects. The children weren't actually saying the inanimate object was smart, but she was saying this is what a representation of intelligence looks like. We often focus on the girls, uh, Dr. Webb, in a way that makes me uncomfortable because those black boys were failing that doll test too. And the black boys were also pointing out the white doll is a smart, pretty, kind doll. But we often think about colorism as something that is wholly within the realm of women, even though, as you mentioned before, men do experience dark skinned blackness in a different way. Can we talk a little bit about the way that the intergender dynamics, um, particularly within the heterosexual community, how that also is infused with a colorist approach to defining beauty, to defining intelligence, to defining who your potential mates could be? Yes. Oh, it gets so deep. Okay. So when we look at the historical legacy of colorism, for example, it's so colorism exists. It's it's an interlocking system with things like patriarchy and sexism, for example. And so in a white supremacist, patriarchal capitalist society, men across races um, typically have more power or dominance within their communities and within their racial groups. And so because male identity and the male role in the household for generations, right, for centuries has been one of the provider and the protector. And I'm talking about a system. I'm not saying I subscribe to any particular ideal. Um, men, Black men, dark-skinned Black men, have been able to lean more heavily on their educational level and their amount of income. And so some research historically has looked at how dark-skinned Black men were able to marry lighter-skinned women from higher social classes, right? Mm. Whereas dark-skinned women were not able to enter into middle class through marriage in the same way. And vice versa, lighter-skinned women who grew up in lower-income households were able to marry men of greater wealth, right? In a more recent study, this study might have been not not done within the past 10 years, but one of the more recent studies on marriage showed how we are because we always talk about the marriage rates for white women versus black women. But what that study showed is that for women with very light skinned or and or biracial black women, their marriage rates were actually on par were actually equivalent to the marriage rates of white women. And that for black women with medium brown skin tones, they were about 15 to 20% less likely. And for women with dark skinned, they were um, about half as likely to be married by age 30 Mm. than women with very light skin tones. And so even within um, the, the heterosexual dating market, we see that male, that patriarchal advantage where darker skinned men, and we see it in celebrity culture as well, like to be honest, keeping it 100. Yeah. <laughs> we see it in celebrity culture all the time where dark skinned black men um, are seem to be more accepted in the dating and marriage market than dark skinned black women. And I think part of it has to do with notions and beliefs about men while also racist stereotypes about black men, right? Play a part into that as well in terms Mm. of like non-black women who choose to date black men, et cetera. Um, And then the association of masculinity with darker skin, right? When some of the comments we hear is that, you know, dark skinned women are, you know, too ratchet or too hood or they're not as feminine or as soft or whatever. So we having to overcome a lot of these racist biases. Mm. 
this is deep and the work is is intense because you know i i remember learning these politics on the playground your mama so black was usually the entry point to a whole lot of shame and over the kwanzaa holiday we, we were speaking with some family friends and uh one of the the gentlemen in the room was saying you know disrespect is a common language in our community like we speak in a language of disrespect we we teach our children to be disrespectful now you got to respect your parents yes but we teach our children that it is appropriate to engage with each other in the vibration of complete and utter disrespect the winner of that game which begins with yo mama so black is the person who can verbally annihilate and destroy the emotional well-being the the sense of security that the person they're combating actually has and so this idea that colorism is baked in it, it is a and now a cultural it's a part of the intergenerational inheritance that I think we all receive, that we all pass down. So when we're playing those games, the dozens, when we're playing games where the winner is able to talk about how black you are in the most vile and cruel ways, and then people around are applauding, isn't that part of transferring intergenerationally these same values for lighter skin, values for whiteness, really, uh, and how much we can approximate them? Yes, absolutely. Um, a phrase I've used often is, we, you know, a lot of Black folks love Blackness as long as it ain't too Black, mm. right? And so that a joke, I've heard that joke, it's you so Black or your mama so Black or, you know, this, this and that, right? And there's this, you know, even the word Black, I made a TikTok video with the Twilight Zone theme music and yeah. I said, you know, <laughs> when Black people use Black as an insult, right? Mm. And so this notion that, oh, don't call me Black, I'm not Black, I'm Brown, right? And this wanting to like distance and this shaming of Blackness and definitely you know, because people say, oh, it's just jokes, right? Even going back to Wakanda Forever, when people say, oh, it's just a joke. Hmm. Jokes are one of them for that reason, because what, you know, racist people and colonizers have understood is precisely when your guard is down. It's precisely hmm. when you don't suspect any insidious intentions that you're more likely to receive the message. You're more likely to receive the conditioning. Wow. And so jokes, entertainment, music, like all that fun stuff that seems entertaining and thrilling, like those are the most effective forms of conditioning, right? Ooh. Because if you are aware that you're, that someone's trying to brainwash you, you can put your defenses up. But if it's just fun, if it's just entertainment, right? Or if it's just, oh, that's just how they are, or that's just how we do it in this family, you know, kind of normalizing mm. emotionally abusive things, right? And that's something mm. that we've done a lot, I think in black households and in black families as well. And it's totally okay to change and evolve. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, you know, we can normalize like affirmation amongst black people. We can, we can normalize mm. support and edification and uplifting and like rooting each other on. Let's start to normalize that right. because it's definitely a continued legacy of slavery and colonialism. We actually have a couple of callers on the line uh, who want to chime in. Y'all, my bad. I, I've been ne neglecting my caller screen. My apologies. Uh, do you have a minute where we can take a call from a, a guest or two and see what they'd like to add to the conversation? Yes. All right. So let's go yep. first to Michael in California. Thank you for calling, Michael. We're at the end of the show, so you're going to have to get quickly to the point, Michael. Uh, what would you like to say to Dr. Webb this morning? Hey, good morning. Uh, I'm not disagreeing with anything Dr. Webb has saying. Um, when I saw that scene, I took it as a family kind of joining hazing where, where family members are knowing what buttons to push, they're hitting people with those buttons. If mm. someone outside of that family had said that to them, that family would remember when they handled that against the other person. So huh. I, I understand what you're saying about the colorism. I just didn't take that scene that way. 
Okay, well, thank you for that. Uh, thank you for that, Michael. We appreciate that comment. Dr. Webb, what, what would you say to that? That this was just among family. They were just joking. It was, it was in family. Right. It's, I think uh, just because someone is related to you doesn't mean that they can't hurt you. But also mm. there's a, a seed of truth in every joke. Right. In order for you to be able to imagine that joke, there's a part of you that really dislikes that feature or that understands wow. that somehow believes or ascribes to that kind of notion or that kind of shaming. Right. And mm. I, again, it goes back to what I was literally just saying, like we have to as black people, because we experience so much negation and degradation from everybody else, all other mm. races and groups of people. We don't have time. We literally cannot afford to continue the jokes and the johnning and the, you know, picking out things that society has already torn apart. Why would we wow. want to do that, right? Racism has told us that our hair and our skin tone is not enough. Why would we feed into that? Mm. Jokes are not jokes. It's just, we just literally can't, don't have the capacity. If we're trying to really undo white supremacist colonization and racism, we really can't afford to be draining our energy by reinforcing these narratives, whether they're labeled jokes or not. That's yeah. just my perspective. I, I'm right there with you because I know the people in the audience who are watching weren't a part of the Wakanda family, but they certainly were hurt. Uh, so, you know, how funny is it really? And on who, and who, who gets to laugh? Yeah. Right. Who gets to laugh and the, who feels In the theater, at? a lot of the white people laughed. A lot of the comments were that it was white people laughing, yeah. right? Like a lot yeah. of the theaters were mostly white. And yeah. so it, this movie was not just for the family. <laughs> we have one more caller, uh, Deborah in Maryland. Deborah, unfortunately, you're only going to have about 30 seconds. What would you like to say this morning? Yes, good morning, um, Larie and morning. Doc, doctor. Um, I wanted to make a comment. I have two little granddaughters, and they are, like, fairly light-skinned, and they're identical twins. And um, when they were little, I did the, the colorism test on them to see which doll they would pick. And so they would always sometimes go for the light doll, but I started retraining them. I retrained their thoughts and we mm. started giving them like these little dark dolls. And I started saying stuff like, Oh my God, she's so pretty. Oh my God. Look how pretty she is. She looks like granny. She looks like us. And then I would like, and I, I would give them dolls that had hips like granny and was tall like their mom. And they would be like, Oh, I have granny's doll. And now they only carry around the dark doll because wow. I've made them believe that they're so beautiful because I like go crazy when I see the black dolls. I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe how pretty she is. Look at how cute her face. Mm. And now when you see them, they have their little black dolls with them. Deborah, the thank you for that. For time's sake, we have to leave it there. Dr. Webb, I, I've done similar things with my own daughter. If I see a dark-skinned black person, oh my God, she's beautiful. Look at her hair. I mean, I will, to the point where my husband's like, okay, really? <laughs> but we, Dr. Webb, we only have a minute or two left. What would you say uh, to Deborah and to those of us who are trying to find ways of conditioning our children to love the fullness of blackness? Yeah, I think the, the the beauty of knowing that we've been conditioned is knowing that that means we can be unconditioned. If we learn something, mm. we can unlearn it and learn something else. And so I think we have to do it with dolls. We have to do it with coloring books. We have to do it with our choices. We have to role model in our own bodies, self-acceptance and self-love of blackness, right? We can't just say, oh, you embrace your natural hair, but I don't mm. want to do that yet. We can't just say, oh, you don't bleach your skin, but I'm still bleaching mine, right? We have to be role models. And then like every word language matters right so that includes the jokes right but also affirmations right and so every component 
of our lives and our days, we have to be conscious and intentional about it. I appreciate you so much, Dr. Webb, and your scholarship on this arena. I'm looking forward to having you come back because I'm already speaking that into existence. How can people follow you between now and the next time we can get you back on these airwaves? Yeah, so a lot of people like my Instagram at Colorism Healing. I'm also on LinkedIn, Dr. Sarah L. Webb on LinkedIn, and then ColorismHealing.com if you'd like to learn more or work with me professionally. Thank you for doing this work. There is a scholar for every part, uh, every part of our community that is uh, suffering, and I appreciate that you exist and that your work exists, and the scholarship is there to support that we have to heal uh, from this arena as well. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a real pleasure having you here. Thank you.